Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, welcoming back our good friend David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic. First of all, uh, happy Wednesday, David. Thank you so much. You know, I feel like this is kind of a scene from uh, the movie Don't Look Up. I don't know. You ever see that movie? Not as yet. Okay, so uh, you know, I mean, meteor hurtling toward Earth, and everybody is uh, is obsessed with social media and the various celebrity stories. And I've been deeply immersed in what's going on in Ukraine and the and the tragedies and throughout the world. But I have to talk about Elon Musk, and it just feels like one of these distractions. So let's just start there, mm-hmm. David. First of all, Elon Musk takes over Twitter. What do you think? Does anyone have any idea, first of all, what he's going to do? And what's your gut sense? Does does Twitter get better or does it get worse under Elon Musk? Um, first, human time is finite. Everyone has only so many hours of the day, no matter how wealthy you are. And he's undertaken a lot of responsibilities. Um, this is one more, and you wonder whether he can manage it. I don't have a lot of opinions about the whole question of content moderation. But what I, I would worry about two things. Um, the, the first is that... Elon Musk has huge exposure to China. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you about that. Not only a a factory there, but a factory that contains a lot of intellectual property that the Chinese could steal. Um, And he has also a lot of interest in the Chinese market, and not just for Tesla, but other other lines of venture. Will he be susceptible to more pressure from the Chinese to influence the way Twitter is managed? That's the first thing I worry about. Uh, The second thing is um, that he has just paid... Um, the gross, the GDP of Paraguay, I mean, almost $50 billion <laughs> for a company that has gross revenues about the same as those of the Olive Garden restaurant chain. Now, maybe he's <laughs> truly content, as he says, to earn so little on such a big stake. But it has to occur to you, he is a businessman. It has to occur to you, he's got to find some way uh, to control costs, to increase revenues, um, to squeeze out some money to make this investment look more rational. And um, it's, you know, I'm not a tech guy. It's not obvious to me what those are, but the bad possibilities outnumber the good ones. I think that's right. And also, I I think that there's sometimes um, it's a a category error to assume that someone, because somebody has been successful in one line of business, that they will be successful in another uh, kind of business. Also, the, you know, the the, the shift that the, the Elon Musk has had a certain freedom uh, to pursue his uh, his various you know enterprises uh, quite successfully, uh, Twitter is a whole different kettle of fish. It's sort of like when a general becomes a politician and suddenly realizes that uh, pressing the same buttons doesn't have the same result. And you make a really interesting point. Uh, there are so many political, social, cultural, technical quagmires ahead for Elon Musk. You, you kind of wonder whether in this, what feels like kind of an impulsive decision uh, to buy to buy this, that he's really thought it through. What happens if China starts que- uh, squeezing him? Does he push back against uh, China? Uh, what happens? You know, he, he you know talks a good game about uh, less moderation, more free speech. What happens when the trolls and the neo-Nazis come back? Uh, what does he do there? Um, and you know, how long does it take for him to simply lose interest in it? Yeah. And, and what does he do about the Trump problem? I think for a lot of very rich people, it's it's good, it's helpful to be in a position where, where 
you are under pressure and all you can do is shrug and say, I, I wish I could help you. I just can't. Um, there's nothing I can do. Well, what if there is something you can do, <laughs> then suddenly that escape hatch vanishes. So now he will be under pressure from, from Donald Trump. He'll also be under an interesting pressure from other Republicans, despite his self-portraiture as his Ayn Rand creative hero. In, in fact, uh, his career has been highly dependent on favor from government. What is the correct answer to the readmit Donald Trump to Twitter question? What Donald Trump says? What Republicans say in public? Or what Republicans fervently wish in private, which is that Donald Trump not be there to um, disarrange the news cycle, to force his demands on them. And this leads us a little bit to um, another thing I know you want to talk about, the DeSantis fight. Yeah. Because uh, the Republican Party is producing – in. Governor DeSantis, in many ways, a perfect candidate for today's Republican Party, uh, a man who's absolutely willing to follow the line laid down by other people in the Republican Party. With Trump, you have someone who insists, I'm in charge. I want to lay down the line. And if he's back on Twitter, he will be laying down the line. Do you have any doubt in your mind that Elon Musk will let uh, Trump back on Twitter? I, 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 have, I think that feels like a stone cold certainty to me. What do you think? I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze Musk's actual politics, but given what I said about his business problem, yeah, I mean, letting Trump back onto Twitter is a no-brainer. What would drive traffic? What one thing could he do that would drive traffic and interest more than readmitting Trump to Twitter? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, it's, you know, if, if he wants to continue this very short-lived honeymoon, and it will be a short-lived uh, honeymoon, I don't think that there's any question about it. It is interesting the way people are reacting, the right and the left. Uh, uh, our colleague uh, Barry Rubin just posted a little while ago, you know, this this migration of Twitter. Uh, liberals apparently are, are so upset they're leaving. Uh, AOC lost uh, more than 27,000 followers. Rachel Maddow lost uh, nearly 19,000. Meanwhile, Marjorie Taylor Greene gained 41,000. Dinesh D'Souza gained 42,000. So I, I think that conservative people on the right um, are, are thinking that somehow that Elon Musk is going to usher in yeah. this, this this new Eden-like social media experience for them. And I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of disillusionment. Yeah, well, I think that thing about the, the Twitter losses, um, this is in the period of the past few days. I was one of those, I lost some, some followers. I lost about mm -hmm. 3,000 followers over the past 48 hours. But here's what I think happened. So in December of 2021, Twitter went on a bot-crushing expedition. And clearly the formula they used to crush bots tilted right mm -hmm. because uh, all kinds of right-leaning Twitter accounts were complaining that they were losing tens of thousands of followers. And meanwhile, more liberal accounts were not losing any. Well, I think all well, that has happened is now six months later or five months later that um, Twitter is cleaning up with a different algorithm that is purging more left-leaning bots. Um, mm. uh, but I, I just would add, when you see your account, uh, if your follower account uh, go down suddenly by large numbers of people, it, you haven't actually lost any followers. Um, yeah. All they've done is to use They're an real anti people. Yeah, it's, it's like when you when you restart your computer and it goes to cleans up all the junk, the electronic junk that's accumulated. So in December, they cleaned up a lot of fake accounts that, that attach to right-leaning platforms, and and this time it's the opposite. Six months later, and you know why do you want a lot of fake? non-real people following you anyway. I mean, what's, what's the point in talking to the air? Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned uh, the the whole question of will Donald Trump come back to uh, to Twitter and the way that Republicans are reacting. Uh, Politico's playbook is actually kind of amusing this morning. They write, uh, as it turns out, no one is more petrified of this than members of Trump's own party on Monday night. 
in a series of calls and texts with several uh, top GOP insiders, every single one of them told us they hope the former president stays the hell away from Twitter, lest he sink their chances at flipping the House and Senate. Some of his allies even think that a return to his old Twitter habits could damage his own brand. If I'm a Democrat, said one House GOP leadership aide, uh, I'd pray that Elon Musk puts Trump right back on Twitter. I don't think it costs Republicans the House, but it certainly could elevate Trump's opinions, as you point out, and is going to get Republican candidates and members back having to answer for that. And then this right. person added, it's it's enough to create headaches and it's enough to probably cost us a couple of seats. So. I don't think there's any question that Elon Musk will will invite Trump back. Trump is claiming there's no way he's not going to come back on Twitter. It would obviously kill his own so truth social, which is pretty much dead. Is there any doubt in your mind that Trump will come back to Twitter? Would he be able to restrain himself to temptation? The only thing that would uh, slow it down is if there were some kind of private conversation between McConnell and McCarthy and Musk where they said, you know, Mr. Musk, you always have our respectful attention, but you will have our respectful extra attention if you just think carefully and slowly and deliberately uh, about this decision. I mean, why rush? You know, December is also a good month. December is a very good month. Uh, December, you know, that's the time to test this new innovation. December of 22. <laughs> do, do it then. I can see McConnell having that conversation. I cannot imagine uh, Kevin McCarthy having any kind of a conversation like no, that. Right. Right. So since we are on the subject of Donald Trump's influence on the party, of course, it's become this endless doom loop of a parlor game to uh, speculate about whether or not uh, Donald Trump is losing clout in the Republican Party. We have this poll out of Georgia, uh, which would suggest that Brian Kemp, uh, the incumbent governor, has this massive more than yeah. 20 point lead over Trump's endorsed candidate, David Perdue, which, again, will be spun as uh, as Donald Trump's loss of clout. And then there was the Senate Republican primary debate on Monday night. Here's a montage put together by our friends at the Republican Accountability Project, which I think suggests the degree to which this party has been thoroughly Trumpified. All of the candidates go out of their way to tout their support. I mean, their their ties to Trump, uh, even though obviously Trump is uh, weighed in in that race, endorsing Dr. Oz. So here's about a minute-long montage from last night's Republican debate for Senate in Pennsylvania. He went groveling to President Trump. President Trump saw it right through him, did not endorse him, and then he endorsed me. Everything President Trump put in place worked. The reason Mema keeps talking about President Trump's endorsement is because he can't run on his own positions. President Trump won Pennsylvania. President Trump endorsed being President Trump was very clear, I'm America first. I'm the only person in this race that was appointed by President Trump. You say that you are America first, okay. you did so much for President Trump, and yet he rejected Thank you Thank twice. you, Ms. Barnett. Once again, trying to tell Pennsylvanians something that President Trump does not believe is true. President Trump doesn't always get the best advice. Help I him. am the only conservative voice. No, you're not. Dishonest Dave is at it again. What President Trump did is he put his finger on the fact President Trump did was respect people who had been othered, forgotten, canceled. President Trump coined the word MAGA. I have discussed with President Trump. And just like President Trump, that experience is going to make you. me a better senator. Thanks. So much so that President Trump on his teletown hall. We need to enforce the policies that worked under the Trump administration. President Trump saw right through him. He therefore did not endorse Mr. McCormick. He endorsed me. President Trump's policies. Uh, Trump was able to put together Operation Warp Speed. We saw under the Trump economy. That's why President Trump has done so well. Yeah. David. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's not, you know, Trump versus Trump skeptical. It's like super Trump versus mega super Trump. 
Yeah. This is this is your Republican Party 2022. Yeah. I I mean I I can't put myself in the mind of a of a TV viewer, but but what you just played is an ad that will have a very different effect in November of 2022. You know, it is really worth remembering Donald Trump is not that popular with Americans. Mm-hmm. He's not even super popular with Republicans. Uh, he, he's popular with a faction of Republicans, and maybe it's a faction that has disproportionate weight in the primaries. But if I were a, a sort of the central brain of the Republican Party, I, I'd be nervous because the one thing that can really tilt an, an election away from the Republicans is to make it a referendum on Trump rather than a referendum on other problems. Right. You know, while the employment is strong in America, and there's, there is a lot of good news and the, the pandemic is abating fast. We do have a lot of inflation. We've got a crime problem. And uh, we have a lot of just sort of weird glitches in the economy where, you know, that shampoo you like, it's not in the store and who knows mm-hmm. when it will be back. So it's not a, an incumbent horrible environment, but it's an, an incumbent challenging environment. Uh, so if you're the non-incumbent party, you want to be talking about the incumbent all the time. You know, I remember years and years ago traveling with uh, Phil Graham when he was thinking of running for president, and I saw him give a sort of tongue lashing to a candidate that he thought talked too much, and and he said, "When you're running against an incumbent, there are only two issues: the incumbent's record and you're not a kook." <laughs> it's pretty good. That aged well, didn't it? That did it. And I think it's going, and I just think that if I were, if, if, you know, if you're Kevin McCarthy, you want to talk about the incumbent's record and I'm not a kook. And instead, uh, the Trump pressure is to talk about the, uh, the non-incumbent record, uh, which was, you know, which, uh, which includes, you know, a pandemic and the insurrection and just the general unpleasantness of the Trump personality. And you do look like a kook. Well, and also it makes it more of a choice rather than simply an up or down referendum. Uh, yes. if, if if the midterms are an up or down referendum, are you happy with the way things are going? The Democrats are going to get absolutely skunked. On the other hand, if it's a choice, okay, you know, whatever is going on now versus look, you know, we are talking about the insurrectionists in Congress. We are talking about the restoration of Donald Trump. That becomes a completely different dynamic. Yeah, off-year elections are not even a referendum on how things are going because there are years when things are going pretty well, 1986, where the party of the president gets clobbered uh, in the off-year elections. I, I think of mid- off-year elections or off-presidential elections as asking this question, got any complaints? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> People do. Even when things are generally good, they still have complaints. And this is the perfect opportunity in what voters may wrongly regard as a risk-free environment uh, to air those complaints. So got any complaints? I mean, in 2022, there's more good than bad in America. The pandemic is receding. The economy is strong. The job outlook is good. The supply shocks are manageable. The inflation problem is bad, but not not yet apparently chronic. The crime problem you know, is bad, but the methods that have worked before will work again. So uh, if the question is, would you like something else instead? You know, it's a tough call. But if you if the question in 2020 is, got any complaints, we've all got complaints. Let's talk a little bit about what happened in France. It's been a few days, but I was reading some of the commentary about this. And, and once again, I'm reminded that uh, the, the term democracy is perhaps uh, the most overused but underappreciated uh, terms in our, in our politics, because there were some folks who said, well, 
would it have been bad for democracy if Marine Le Pen had been elected in a free and fair democratic election? Isn't that what democracy is about? Which struck me as a complete misunderstanding of what we mean by the term democracy, because, yeah, uh, a right wing authoritarian like uh, Marine Le Pen could come to power in a democratic election, yeah. but it'd still be a terrible day for democracy. Do you yeah. agree? Uh, yeah, Juan Perón, Hugo Chavez. There are yeah. lots of examples of um, Hitler. authoritarians come. <laughs> Hitler is not quite a good example. He came to power more by a parliamentary maneuver than in a yeah. uh, free and fair election. Yeah. Um, and I think never won more than a third of the vote. Um, and and always and always used um, a lot of violence, even mm -hmm. when he was not in power, as a way to as a way to. But but Perón, Chavez, um, and. Probably the election that first brought Vladimir Putin to power in the mm -hmm. year 2000 was probably reasonably free and fair. But I mean, it's, it's sort of a, a wild hypothetical because 60% of French people, or nearly so, uh, thought it would be bad for democracy and bad for all kinds of things, including the hopes for a, a success in Ukraine. Uh, the, the metric, I, I mean, people are partly misled by the New York Times coverage, which always emphasizes, you know, the prospects for, you know, they have this you know, why should I go interview my friends in Paris? Let me go interview people who right. are different from me. And so they go interview people who are like pen leaning and create a false impression. And then when Macron gets over 58% of the vote, they say that's not enough. And I tweeted um, just as a comparison, when Charles de Gaulle ran for re-election in 1965, mm -hmm. the greatest French hero of the 20th century, he got 55% of the vote. So if you're yeah. getting three points more than Charles de Gaulle in his re-elect, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, it is pretty good, especially when you consider, you know, how unpopular uh, Macron was in the polls. Okay, so Can I just yeah, oh yes, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. So people say Macron is unpopular. They base that on polling that is a variant of the "got any complaints" question. Correct. <laughs> so people have complaints, but Macron is had important. He he was not just a lesser evil candidate. He you know, he had important affirmative popularity because he has done. A lot of tough things that really need doing. Now, let me just talk about one French voter mm -hmm. I know, uh, I just happened to run into, um, kind of an acquaintance, but not really, who is someone who leans pretty left, um, but who is passionately pro-Macron. And she told me the story. She she worked uh, for one of the big French broadcasters. She a woman in her early 30s. She had mm -hmm. a very mm -hmm. secure job. She made a good living, and she wanted to rent an apartment. And when she rented her apartment, um, uh, when she had to get not only – put down all kinds of deposits, but she had to get signatures from her parents. Why? And the answer is because once a landlord has leased an apartment in, in France, especially in Paris, it is virtually impossible to get the tenant out. Mm -hmm. No matter what the tenant does, even if the tenant doesn't pay rent for a year, it's still impossible to eject. So the landlord needs as much moral commitment as possible from as many people as possible before he does the, the risky mm -hmm. thing of leasing an apartment. And my, my acquaintance said, you know, maybe if you could throw out tenants who didn't pay their rent, someone like me who will pay the rent could get an apartment without needing her parents' cross signature at age 33. A radical idea. It's a radical, but that's <laughs> that's the Macron problem. Like Macron is, this is not, we're not here on the outer fringes of libertarian ideology. We're, we, Macron is saying things like, maybe if a tenant doesn't pay rent for a year, the landlord should be able to remove them. Mm -hmm. A lot of French people say, that that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you would hope they would. <laughs> you know, maybe 
Uh, maybe our job program shouldn't be that you stay in school until age 34 and have state-funded retirement at age 38. Like when you compress the entire right. working, like like you know, really, you know, maybe maybe people should in a country with low birth rates and that is trying to get control of the uh, flows of immigration. Maybe the, if you want to control immigration, you know, people can't retire at 60. You know, my daughter lives in France uh, with, 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 with her kids, and I, I'm guessing that most of her acquaintances would be uh, on the left, although she's noticing, you know, many of the things that you're describing, just how strange things are, like including the fact that there are no entry-level jobs uh, in, in France, and the, the job situation is just terrible for young people, in part because it, it, it is so hard to get rid of people, and so that that whole tier of employment opportunities that we just take for granted in this country, yep. you know, maybe we describe them as crap jobs, they just don't exist. And as right. a result, there is no social mobility. And if you are a young person without a job in France, it is pretty grim. Yeah. And I, so I, it is encouraging to watch, uh, you know, French voters begin to connect the dots between some of these policies, which they may like and may be comfortable and then the consequences for the overall economy. And I think that's one of the things, the push and pull that's going on right now. So let's go back to uh, Ron DeSantis, because you said something uh, the other day that was very interesting, that we need to see this through a different lens. It's not DeSantis versus Disney, but DeSantis versus Trump. And let's do that right after this. So do you feel like you're living in a media bubble, like it's harder than ever to find views that challenge your own? That's where The Lost Debate steps in. It's a podcast and a YouTube show for political eclectics who crave exposure to a diversity of beliefs and perspectives. The Lost Debate covers the latest news, ideas, and trends without the bias and manipulation from the mainstream and alternative media. It's hosted by Ravi Gupta, a former staffer for Obama and a school principal who fought Republicans at the ballot box, then fought alongside them for charter schools. It's also hosted by Corey Bradford, a progressive political organizer turned TikTok star who used to host a Fox News radio show, and Ricky Schlott, a Generation Z New York Post columnist and libertarian fighting to protect free speech. So they come from across the political aisle and from different generations, but they come together for debates that sound less like crossfire and more like discussions between real people. So join the conversation. Check out The Lost Debate today. New episodes drop on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Find The Lost Debate on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Okay, we are back with David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic. So let's talk about uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, who has uh, you know, become the, the heartthrob of the right by lashing out at, uh, at Walt Disney in retaliation for its position on gay rights. There's more and more evidence that uh, this was perhaps not well thought out. I see a story that lawyers are saying, by the way, uh, those bonds that were sold to finance uh, many of the developments uh, came with a specific language from the state of Florida pledging not to abolish this special tax district. But in any case, so what do you mean when you say it's not DeSantis versus Disney, it's DeSantis versus Trump? I am strongly of the view that DeSantis did not want this fight. He didn't, he, I don't think he wanted round one, which is the fight over the actual original bill. And I am certain he did not want round two where he punished Disney so um, spectacularly for defying him on, on uh, the bill. Um, 
he uh, for the on round one, um, Ron DeSantis was going to run for the Republican nomination on something that was very broadly popular among Republicans and even among many non-Republicans, which is the public health authorities went a little mental in 2020 and 2021, and especially on the schools. Um, they closed schools when the smart choice was to keep the schools open, and I resisted extremism. I'm, I'm not anti-vax, although I don't like to answer questions about it, but I took the vax, yeah. and we have high rates of vaccination in Florida. I worked with publics to get vax out there, and I kept the schools open when a lot of states... Right close them. You're welcome. That's me at Ron DeSantis, defender of common sense. And freedom. And freedom. Yeah. Now he's, so now round one of this fight says, you know, that guy who kept the schools open, he also is really anti-gay, really anti-gay. And not just, you know, and some of the issues that are kind of, that are very controversial now, which is transgender issues and puberty blockers for kids. But like, he's not sure that gay people should be allowed to teach high school and put a picture of their partner on their desk. So that's not where America is. That's probably not where Ron DeSantis personally is, and it's certainly not a good place to be. But he got pushed uh, into um, backing this bill that creates a new identity for him that he really didn't need. But then, round two, Disney speaks up. And suddenly, there is this mantra. Now, you know, what you could have done is just to shrugged it off, right? Corporations, you know, take pious positions all the time. Look at Toyota saying we won't fund candidates who oppose, you know, who try to overthrow yeah. the 2020 election. And then six months later, Toyota is quietly supporting all the candidates who about, tried to overturn the 2020 election. They take pious positions. They retreat from them. You know, he could have, he must have known that that was the case with Disney which is a company that leans Republican, that was an important supporter of his, an important supporter of the Republican majority in the state of Florida. Instead, he creates this gigantic fight um, uh, that has all of these, as you said, heinous consequences for Florida taxpayers, for uh, the bond ratings, for Florida state debt. So who pushed him into this? And I think the real significance of this fight is it's DeSantis auditioning with the Republican conservative entertainment complex to say that guy Trump kept doing things where he drove you to take positions. Kim Kardashian told him about prison reform. He decided Kim's hot. I want to be for what Kim's for. Mm -hmm. She's a real, she's a real honest to God celebrity. Unlike all these Fox news fakers, I'm doing what Kim says. And now you all have to follow me. I'm mad at Megyn Kelly. You thought she was the future of your network. I'm going to have a fight with her. Now you have to get rid of her. DeSantis is telling that world, if some maniacal idea pops in the head of a bunch of 4chan commentators and via Chris Rufo goes on to Tucker Carlson, that's my, I'm your guy. I'll do that for you. No matter how possibly harmful it is to myself. With, huh. with Ron DeSantis, you are the boss. With Donald Trump, he's the boss. That's the this message. This is interesting be, because, of course, you know, the, the narrative um, around him is that he's strong and that he fights. And this is why there's so much enthusiasm. You're describing this as demonstrating his submission to this right wing entertainment complex, his 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 willingness to be led yes. by yes. them in, in into areas that, in fact, um, are political losers because he, he does not appear to be reluctant in any way to go along with this. I no. mean, it's like when they say jump, it's like how high, how fast. And then he, it, it feeds on it itself, doesn't it? Because that, then he gets praised. He basks in the glow of, of the admiration for, wow, this is a guy that that's actually fighting and winning the culture war battles that Donald Trump only talked about. 
Yeah, but, but the thing about politics is you, you really do have to choose your fights and choose them intelligently and choose them remembering that video clips exist and the fights you have today are recallable six months later. So you want to you wanna choose your fights. Fighting Dr. Fauci over reopening the schools, that was a great fight to choose because you're dealing with something where both your party and potentially the public are going to be on your side. And whereas it happened, um, you know, the evidence was was ambiguous at the time that um, DeSantis made his decision and has come in more and more strongly in DeSantis' favor. Great fight, smart fight, profitable inside the party, profitable with the general public. But the fight over, are you scared that the person who teaches high school history is gay? The number of Americans who are still scared that the person who teaches high school history is gay. I mean, Ronald Reagan in, in the late 1970s came out on the mm-hmm. other side of that right. fight. Very famously, um, yes. Very, fam- very famously. Well, mm. 1978, it was maybe a close call. But in 2022, and I, uh, leaving aside the ethics of it, because as I'm sure DeSantis does, <laughs> just straight Paul, this is a crazy fight. And the, the current fight with Disney is, is worse because it ju- what it does is if what you want to do is say we're against cancel culture, we're for, against content moderation, we're the party, where our message is freedom. But the the freedoms we favor do not include the freedom to criticize the government. That fee- no, that that mm-hmm. you don't have. I mean, you, you absolutely you have a freedom to you know injure your loved ones by carrying a gun without any training. Yes, for mm-hmm. sure. You know, absolutely a freedom to stalk your former girlfriend with a gun. Yes, of course that that's in the Constitution, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but but the freedom to criticize the government without retaliation. No, we don't believe in that. I mean, it just completely and it's, and the, the the attack writes itself. You know, and that's the question is uh, under President DeSantis, will you be allowed, you know, to criticize the government? That's a powerful line of attack. And, and, and he has to see it coming. And I don't believe he chose it. I think he got pushed. And and as to how strong he is, if, if you're so if, if Chris Rufo can push you around, you're not that strong. So there is an ideal outcome for DeSantis, right? I mean, he can negotiate. He, you know, the courts are almost certain to uh, invalidate this, throw it out on one ground yeah. or, or another. Um, so he could negotiate a deal with Disney, you know, then he could, yes. you know, or rail against the courts and the bureaucrats for not letting him stomp on them. Right. I totally think that's where this is going. Uh, that I, and I think that that was, that was his, his own build escape hatch. This goes into effect in 2023 or supposed to, and it's, the bills are studded with, uh, with procedural defects, many of them highly technical like did you get the consent of all the business improvement yeah. district uh, there's there's and as you no said way. the bond issue yeah. and that, I, why is disney being so quiet about it and my guess is not only have their lawyers told them this thing is going to collapse but there, there may even be private conversations between the governor and disney to say just give me a little bit of time here we'll work something out so your bottom line is this is a DeSantis versus Trump fight for the support of the right wing entertainment complex yes. that they're yes. going back and forth. How is that playing out right now? Because I, I, I have to say that that I am struck by how enthusiastic um, this uh, this this entertainment complex is about DeSantis and even some of the anti anti Trump folks, you know, at the publications like National Review are prepared yeah. to do battle on behalf of DeSantis uh, in a way that sort of was reminiscent of their willingness to defend Trump. But what is your sense how this is playing out? Well, and does it pose a real threat to Donald Trump getting the nomination? I think it, it does pose some challenge to him. But uh, here's here's what's going on. First, the kind of people who are most active in conservative conversation have almost zero interests in the world of things. Yeah. 
you know, if you yeah. read Rick Scott's 11 point so-called plan for uh, the Republican future, you know, it's not their health care. Uh, it's, not, it's not even like, at least in the past, the words healthcare would appear. There might not be any, you know, anything but blather. They don't even appear. There's no acknowledgement that healthcare, the party that spent a decade vowing to repeal and replace Obamacare, where Heritage and AEI and the others spent together a billion dollars over eight years promising to deliver an alternative it's not like it's gone. We're not going to do it. We don't care. And we don't think you care because they live entirely in a world of representation. It's not things that interest them. It's images of things. It's things as refracted through social media. So this fight that DeSantis, it's perfect. It's none of the boring bureaucratic detail you're not interested in. I mean, it's, it's not about healthcare. It's not about pensions. It's not about roads. It's not about dulls. It's about pure animus and representation and arguments about arguments, or even better arguments about arguments about arguments. So that's perfect. The second thing is, as you have observed so often, conservatives have pivoted away from so many things that they supposedly stood for. You would think the ability of a corporate entity to express a view on a public policy matter without direct retaliation from the state. <laughs> would be, you know, the pure essence of conservatism yeah. as one knew it in, say, 1985. That, mm-hmm. you know, you know, uh, can a corporation speak out against the government policy without the government trying to take away the corporation's charter? <laughs> yes, that's obviously. It's not a hard one. So the amount of emotional energy you need to execute that pivot, I, I think that's one of the reasons that people have to be so excited about this. Because otherwise, if you weren't in a state, just the words coming out of your own mouth – I believe in freedom, except for the freedom to criticize the government. Um, It's a hard, it's a mouthful. No, I mean, it was extraordinary watching, you know, Ben Shapiro, who's, you know, made this entire career around uh, in being an advocate for free speech on university campuses, go all in on to businesses, you know, try speaking out on politics or culture. We're going to take a two by four to you, you know, F around and find out what's going to happen. Right. And it's like they don't even break That proposition is, I believe in corporate free speech unless the corporation speaks about something that I personally think is not the corporation's business. Yeah. Uh, Oh, okay. And can can the corporation use its property in any way unless you personally disapprove of it? Like It's like the Ben Shapiro codicil that if I disapprove of it, then, then you can't do it. But you're free to do anything I approve of. Well, and of course, this is also the fruit of years and years and years of saying that the left is tyrannical, trying to impose its own will. And so the answer that you often will get is, well, look, we are simply using the tools and the weapons that the left has been using against uh, private businesses and individuals for years. So if you create this world in which your enemies are prepared to destroy all freedoms, all things that are good and decent, then you find a way to rationalize essentially saying, well, we're going to bring a gun to a gunfight. I mean, that that seems to be the kind of mentality, you know? Why should we play by Marquis of Queensberry rules when they don't, when in fact it's, I think, qualitative? Yeah. The, the logic here is as follows. Um, look, our Democratic opponents have for years been talking about a $15 an hour minimum wage. And that's right. why it's the sound conservative principle to offer $30 an hour. Yeah. You know, li- those liberals, they're promising to cancel student debt. Well, we're not going to stand by and let them get away with that. We're going to promise to cancel credit card debt. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it, you know, the thing is, okay, my, my opponent is doing something I disagree with. Well, that makes sense because he's my political opponent. If we, I agreed with what he was doing, we wouldn't be opponents, would we? Um, I have other principles that I stand for. And one of my principles is I believe in the freedom. 
I believe that corporations, I don't believe that corporations are literally people, but I believe, and I have a chain of Supreme Court precedents, including Citizens United, saying that corporations have many of the attributes of personhood. Um, and that's how you get a dynamic economy. And I'm for that. And among the attributes of personhood are certain speech rights, and they may be limited in some ways, but direct individualized retaliation against a corporation, one corporation for speaking, for expressing a criticism of the government. Like, and, oh, and that's okay because the people I disagree with have tried to do this, this thing I disagree with in the past. So therefore now I agree with them and outbid them. We're on the way to, you know, the true, the mark of a true conservative is advocating, you know, single payer dental and veterinary care. That'll really own the libs with their single payer medical care. See, I'm kind of wondering now whether it's going to become kind of a, a right wing thing to go out and buy Teslas, considering that there's no consistency here. Well, this is what happens when you drop principles, when you don't think things through, because it, it all becomes about, you know, if it triggers the libs or if it if it upsets you or if you win. Um, well, then 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 you really are in a, you know, in a, in a completely different universe. Well, you're living in a world of, as I said, you're living in this world of representations. You know, one of the checks on politics being too crazy. Uh, is elected politicians always have to keep in mind, you know, that there's some quite, so, so somebody said, so an elected politician says, I'm going to go advocate this. It pulls well, you know, it really upsets my opponents. I can raise money. There's going to be somebody in the room who'll say, but what if you win? Yeah. Then you have to do it. Oh, well, that's, that's a point, isn't it? Um, so the discipline of you might win and have to do it is, is always a check on people who do real world politics. But if you're just yapping your gums, you never have to, you, you can't win. And, and indeed, I, the whole purpose, the, the, the best culture war fights from the gum yappers point of view are the fights you lose. That's right. That's right. You always want to be on the losing side. You never want to have to have responsibility. I think that's exactly right. Okay. So David, in, in the few minutes we have left, we have, I want to talk about Ukraine, your sense of where we are at. I know you had a piece a couple of weeks ago in the Atlantic about how much it is going to cost to help rebuild Ukraine. I mean, yeah. I think the amount of money is, is, is going to be absolutely staggering. You know, one of the, the, the chronic questions I ask on this podcast is, are we doing enough? Have we finally turned the corner to saying, all right, um, Ukraine is not only going to survive, uh, it uh, possibly is going to win, and we are okay with Ukraine winning. Yeah. Your sense of, of the state of play right now? Well, I'm, I'm a secondhand borrower of the reporting of my Atlantic colleagues, Jeff Goldberg and Ann Applebaum and others about the military situation and the political situation. I've been focusing my work on the financial and economic situation. On the military side, we're now heading into a period where I think we're two or three weeks away from Ukraine shifting from being on the strategic defense mm -hmm. to having to make a choice about going on the strategic offense. And the strategic offense is harder and will consume more ammunition, more weaponry, more lives. And, and that's going to be a big call. And, and, and a lot of the successes that have come the Ukrainians' way, so long as they were defending um, against Russian attack, may be more, more challenging when they try to liberate their own territory from Russian occupation. Um, but on the economic side, I think we are at last beginning to do enough. But one of the things I, I worry about, especially in this 22 environment, is when you point to the costs of Ukraine, they sound very daunting. We were talking about hundreds of billions of dollars mm -hmm. in euros to rebuild Ukraine. What people don't think enough about is the huge potential upside to all those who finance this help if, if Ukraine succeeds and it works. And let me just dra dramatize this with this example. Yeah. So uh, before the war, the per person 
average income in Ukraine was about 4,000 US dollars, rather less, um, according to the World Bank numbers. So that's astonishingly little. Just to put that in context, hmm. Romania, no one's idea of a European success story. The, the per person average income in Romania is about 14,000 US dollars, again, acute using uh, World Bank numbers. So what happens if we rebuild Ukraine to the point where it catches up to, I'm not talking about Germany here. I'm not talking about Northern Italy. I'm talking about Romania. What is What does that one act of catch up add to the European economy? And the answer is, is it adds in one, that once they catch up, that adds half a trillion euros a year to the output of the European Union. So the game, there's, there's a half a trillion a year of euros lying on the ground if Ukraine just catches up to Romania. How much would you spend in capital to get an income of half a, half a trillion yeah. euros? It's going to be worth it. Um, and the analogy here that I use is um, after World War II, uh, the United States invested heavily in rebuilding, especially Northern Europe, France, uh, France, uh, Germany, Belgium, and Netherlands, the industrial heartland of Europe as it was before the Second World War. Um, then martial aid trickles out by the middle of the 1950s. Um, at that point, Italy is a real laggard. Well, the Northern Europeans who've been rebuilt by uh, American help then invest heavily in pulling Italy along with them into the modern world, making sure there's electricity, making sure there are roads and railways. And the investment in Italy created new consumers, new producers, new source, new suppliers, and the uh, and and extended the European economic recovery, which otherwise might have run out of gas in the middle 60s into the middle 1970s. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's what you do when you take 50 million or so people and haul them from the second world into the first world or the third world into the second. So the act, the act of pulling uh, Ukraine into Europe, it's going to be an investment boom. Just let me point to one thing that has to happen. The old Soviet Union used a different railway gauge than mm -hmm. the rest of Europe. It's rather wider. Mm -hmm. Not only does Ukraine need an upgraded railway system, it's going to need to rebuild all its railway beds to the European gauge. That's expensive. But think what that means in terms of demand for all railway products from the rest of the world, and especially from the rest of Europe. What a huge stimulus that's going to be to uh, manufacturing output, to uh, all the software and technical uh, business that is done in con connection, because a modern railway is not just a choo-choo on, on train. It's a whole, it's a series of computer switching systems and information management. That there is so much potential here, um, and we shouldn't let the price tag daunt us. We should look in, instead at what the possibilities are. You know, it's just fascinating that we're even discussing the, the economic recovery of Ukraine when uh, two months ago we were wondering whether there would be a Ukraine, whether it would even survive. The fact that we are now talking about this and, uh, you know, a potentially bright future for Ukraine integrated into the European economy, that in itself is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. But yes, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Yeah. But seriously, true. the time to start planning for it is now. David Fromm, thank you so much for all of your time. I appreciate it very, very much. We always enjoy having you back on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. But before we sign off, do you hate hearing ads on the podcast? Because I have a solution for you. Join Bulwark Plus, where members enjoy ad-free editions of this show and all the podcasts in our Bulwark network, like Beg to Differ with Mona Charon and The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell. There's also the member-only podcast, The Secret Show, and The Next Level with Tim Miller. You can give a Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. 
Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. This offer is exclusively for listeners of this podcast, The Bulwark Podcast. That is thebulwark.com slash charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.